ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan on Gadigal Land. And me, Tegan Taylor on Jagera and Turrbal Land. Now, Tegan, uh, you might notice in front of you a little surprise, a little different way of starting <laughs> the program. There are two little pots in front of you with white granules in them. Oh my gosh, you're going to try to drug me. Don't snort them. <laughs> what am I? What am I not snorting here? Well, we're going to do a little taste test on you. So okay. you're going to taste each one and tell me if they taste any different. Okay, uh, let's have a little tasty. Oh, it's salt. Yeah. Okay. What's the other one? Uh, <laughs> let's have a. Oh, it's also salt. I'm really missing some tequila here, Norman. What's going on? <laughs> so they're exactly the same. Uh, yeah, I guess so. So the one on your right is potassium salt. Oh, I potassium salt. I mean, I've heard of it, but I, I know that technically NaCl is uh, sodium chloride is what we would usually have. Yeah. So sodium is the stuff that's bad for you. And the idea here is, and we've had stories on this before, that if you change it for potassium salt, it's really good for you. Anyway, we're going to have a story later on, on can we reduce our salt intake because Australians have double the recommended intake on average. So, And, and one of the solutions might be this uh, potassium. Potassium, yeah. Not just at the table, but in your processed food. Also coming up on today's shows, I have been talking to someone whose life has been changed by a gardening club that she was able to access via a referral from her GP, kind of indirectly. Social prescribing. We've done it before, I think, on the show. Yes, a fair bit over the years. Uh, there's been lots of studies. There's been lots of private programs, uh, pilot programs rather, but now the push is on to have a consistent national approach to it. And I'm also going to be shedding a bit more light on a COVID era mystery that you and I have talked about on Coronacast back in the day, Norman. Uh, the question, what was behind a brief but really serious spate of liver disease in really young kids? Yeah, big mystery there. And we'll have hopefully have some of it uncovered for us and low carb diets. But first, let's dig into a little bit of health news from this week. And this is one of, I know it's one of your favourite topics, Norman, uh, insomnia. And um, I know that you must suffer from it at least a little bit because I get journal, journal articles like New England Journal of Medicine article t texts from you at 3am. Uh, this is all about what's the best way to cure it. I hope you've been reading it very closely. I have. I've been scrutinising it really closely and didn't fall asleep as I read it. <laughs> so this was looking at psychotherapy for, uh, for insomnia and what bits of psychotherapy work when you try to treat people who are bothered by a lot of a lot of the element of insomnia is is it does it bother you and are you distressed by it as much as the insomnia itself um, anyway it's quite interesting so what they found was there's not much point in teaching people about sleep hygiene you know keeping your room diet and all dark and all that sort of thing either people know it or it just doesn't make any difference to your to your, uh, to your sleep. Relaxation, teaching you about relaxation could make it worse. Oh. Isn't that interesting? That, that really feels counterintuitive. What's behind that? Well, it probably doesn't get you off to sleep and just keeps you in bed longer because one of the things that does work is, is stimulus control, which is really about teaching you what your bed's for. And the bed's for two things, sleeping and sex not working, not sending New England Journal of Medicine articles, <laughs> which is what I do, and 
Um, and relaxation may actually just keep you in bed when you're awake and not, and not actually help you very much. No doubt we'll get a, we'll be swamped with people telling us how marvellous it is. What they call third wave components, which is more really just mindfulness meditation, that does work quite well. And sleep restriction, which we've talked about before, which is really going to bed as late as possible so that you get an, an, an uninterrupted high quality night's sleep and then only extending that time in bed when um, you're, you're getting a, a reasonable night's sleep and not waking up a lot. So um, I think it's, it's, it's a good study. We're bringing together all the evidence from studies around the world, I should have said that at the beginning, which shows you what works. And um, don't lie in bed fretting and trying to relax yourself back to work, back to sleep. Well, that's some good advice there. And there's also been new advice uh, on sun exposure that better reflects Australia's diverse population. Our previous guidelines have been very much geared towards limiting exposure, which is good if you're white, but it's not universally useful. Yeah, I mean, I think that the previous recommendations have been for a white Anglo-Irish population, which you know, where you burn and you get all sorts of skin cancers, ACCs, BCCs and melanoma, we, and we have the highest rate of skin cancer in the world. And of course, a high percentage of the population now, in, and it's increasing, have dark skin or black skin. And what they've said there is you've got such a low incidence and risk of melanoma that people with dark skin really don't need to routinely uh, put on sunscreen when they go out. Um, although if they're out for extended periods of time, they should cover up. And that's partly because if you've got really dark skin, you convert sunlight to vitamin D very inefficiently and you want to keep that topped up. Mm. And I heard you promising something before about low-carb diets. Yes. Now, this is really interesting. A lot of people are on low-carb diets, but they mean different things to different people. Uh, some people have a low-carb diet where it's a lot of fats, a lot of animal protein, a lot of fat. Some people have more of a plant-based low-carb diet. And, um, and so the question is, which are better for you, particularly when you look at weight loss? And this study took data from massive studies with very, you know, thousands of people. There were health professionals and nurses who've been followed for different health conditions for many, many years. And they were looking at weight change. Now, Tegan, this is not weight loss because sadly, as you know, as we get older, well, you don't know. It's slim <laughs> and lie. That's exactly right. Um, is... The is that we all put on weight as we get older. The question is, are we putting on weight faster or slower? And it really looked at the trajectory of our weight gain over time relative to the kind of low-carb diet we were on. And one of the people on this study was Ji Sun, who's Associate Professor of Nutrition and Epidemiology at Harvard School of Public Health. I found a really contrasting effects on body weight depending on which type of low-carb diet our participants consume. For example, when we look at the low-carb diet that is dense in animal protein and animal fats, we found consuming this kind of low-carb diet is actually associated with faster weight gain. In contrast, if we look at the low-carb diet emphasize plant protein, vegetable oil, so on and so forth, those actually associate with slower weight gain. And we also examined two other types of low-carb. One, we call it healthy low-carb, means this low-carb diet emphasizes carbohydrates from whole grains and also plant proteins, and also vegetable oils. So this is the best version of the low-carb diet, actually associated with less weight gain in comparison with other low-carb diets. But the last one is the worst, called unhealthy low-carb diet. So this diet emphasizes 
carbohydrates from white bread, from sugar-sweetened beverages, emphasizes protein from animal products, and also emphasizes animal fats. This diet is actually associated with faster weight gain. So even if it's low carb, the quality of carbs was low, and you were getting more animal proteins, animal fats. That's absolutely correct. But I think there's a, a interesting point I want to make that follow healthy low carb diet, a very healthy vegetarian or vegan diet could fall into this category. However, it can still contain a small proportion of animal products. But diet emphasizes really if you eat carbs from whole grains, from fresh fruits, vegetables, nuts, and so on and so forth as a source, and also cooking oil as a source of protein and fat. Within that, there could be still a small proportion of animal product, but it's not emphasized. So let's go back to basics here. When you compare low-carb diets with just calorie control or portion control or a Mediterranean diet, do you need to be on a low-carb diet to moderate your weight gain as you get older? Based on our data and also the data from other studies, the answer is no. You don't have to focus on a low-carb diet. What you shall focus is to improve the diet quality, whether it's a low-carb diet, a healthy low-carb diet, whether it's a, a DASH diet, whether it's Mediterranean diet. Those kind of high-quality diets are associated with slower weight gain. So I think absolutely not necessary. You have to eat a low-carb diet to achieve a weight maintenance or weight loss. You should focus on the quality of the overall diet. That's the key. So the bottom line here really is, yet again, you're showing that if you only focus on one element of your diet, in this case carbohydrates, you could be misled into thinking that you've got the solution to your future weight and health when you should really be thinking about your diet as a whole. Yes, I agree with you 100%. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Ji Sun is Associate Professor in the Department of Nutrition and Epidemiology at the Harvard School of Public Health. So my beloved potatoes are safe by the sounds of it. They are safe as long as you don't fry them in animal fat. <laughs> Best bit. Um, <laughs> well, now to what goes with your, um, your, your animal fat fried chips, which is salt. We, as I said at the beginning, Tegan, we, we consume uh, about 10 grams of salt a day in Australia, where the recommendation from the World Health Organization is 5 grams. We should just quali qualify this because people get confused about salt and sodium. So salt, and when you look at the back of the pack, you get confused about salt and sodium. So sodium is you know, roughly half, a little bit less than half of salt because it's sodium chloride. So um, you know, for the recommended daily intake of salt, it's around about two grams a day. And if you take it as salt, it's five grams. So it's just confusion there when you look at the back of the pack. But anyway, the associations of high salt diets are, are quite, you know, quite long lists, but stomach cancer, maybe actually autoimmune diseases, really high blood pressure, kidney damage, which may be a consequence of the blood pressure or the salt itself. And if you look at the avoidable burden of disease in the community, so a burden of disease that's preventable, about 3% is due, you know, can be put down to salt. You could, you could actually, if you, if you actually did that, you would reduce avoidable burden of disease. But that's actually misleading because if you've already got coronary heart disease, high blood pressure or diabetes, then in fact the benefits of salt reduction would be even greater. And that's often focused on suburbs 
where um, people are poorer, live in poorer housing and poorer access to food. So salt reduction could have a disproportionate effect um, around the community. And the relevance of processed foods here is that, A, they're sort of in foods that are actively salty, but they're also used as a preservative to extend the shelf life of a lot of processed foods. So it's hidden in a lot of foods that don't necessarily taste salty, but still have a lot of salt in them. That's right. And that's where we get most of our salt from rather than salt that's added at the table or in our own cooking. Anyway, a team from the University of Melbourne and the Grattan Institute and George Institutes have modelled what reducing salt, i.e. sodium, could look like in the community and the benefits. And uh, earlier today, I spoke to Professor Tony Blakely, who was one of the team. In the modelling we've just done, for example, you see 60% to 100%, 1.6 to 2 times greater health gain for people in the most deprived quintile of Australia versus the least deprived. So in other words, if you're basically unwell for a variety of reasons, you get this multiplier effect rather than additive. Yes, you can. All of these things come together and each one of them mounts on top of the other. The thing about sodium is that actually doing prevention on it is not that hard because a lot of the sodium is hidden in our food, in our packaged food, and can be reduced without much consequence for the taste of the consumer nor the industry. Now, the George Institute has been doing covering this for a long time. They've talked about, and we'll come back to this, swapping potassium salt for sodium salt and various other things. And they've also had an app where you could actually look at the salt content of processed foods, which is where we get most of it from. And in the time they've been monitoring it, it's gone up. It's not gone down. Yeah, because of the way that food is manufactured, the sodium is just creeping up in our diets as we eat more convenience foods. And just to talk about the potassium chloride, we know that you could probably swap a third or 30% of all sodium chloride in the diet with potassium chloride and the consumer wouldn't notice the change in taste very much at all. We modelled 10% substitution on the assumption that that might be more politically feasible and that got some pretty good gains. Okay, so you looked at three ways of intervening here and really what we're talking about here is okay, we shouldn't be adding too much salt at the table, but that's not going to make a heck of a difference. It's in the food that we're eating. Talk about the three interventions and the effect that they could have. The three types of interventions we looked at were reformulation, and there are three different targets that we modelled. One is the WHO benchmark, which sees about a 12% reduction in sodium in the diet. The UK target, which sees about a 7% or 8%, and then Australia actually has its own voluntary targets, which are not in any way been met, which would see about a 3 or 4% reduction in sodium. We also modelled, as I just said, potassium chloride substitution, 10% across the whole food chain or 30% on that discretionary salt that you put in your own cooking or on food at your own table. And then the third one was looking at a UK programme which tried to, and was successful to be honest, uh, reduce sodium in the population for a combination of voluntary reformulation of the industry with a mass media campaign. So if you, if you achieve those targets, what sort of benefits would you see downstream? Let's pick the WHO benchmark, which is about 11 or 12% reduction in sodium. If that was made mandatory in Australia, we'd see something like 43,000 health-adjusted life years gained over the next 20 years. So it's not as big as tobacco eradication or getting rid of high BMI, but it's still up there with being reasonably sizable. Is it expensive? No. You can look at it at three different levels. The first level is you just consider the health expenditure. And on that side, you would see something like a billion dollars saved in the health budget over the next 20 years. And the cost to government of putting the policy in place would be minor compared to that saving. So what about the cost to industry? 
we put it at roughly about $3 million per year is what we can see might be the type of cost, but there are a wide range. Whichever estimates you use, the cost to industry are far, far less than the gains you'd see in reduced health expenditure. And even if you pull all the way out to a societal perspective, so you include the health expenditure reductions because there's less disease, you include the cost to government of implementing the program, you include the cost to industry, which then feeds onto the consumer, and you include the increased incomes to citizens because they've got less sodium-related disease, you're talking about a lot of money saved. But this isn't going to happen without government regulation because the voluntary process isn't working. Exactly. Voluntary occasionally works, but usually it doesn't. Well, it's so gone up, there is that, according to the George yeah, Institute. It has, as best we know. If we were to take this seriously, it needs to be made mandatory. If you're going to be trying to do stuff in the space, you really do have to shift the playing field for everybody. And that's a common thing with industry but, is they, they, but, they often would appreciate the same standards for everyone. But in the past, when I've put this to, say, Food Standards Australia and New Zealand, they say, oh, well, we can't just do that unilaterally, little old Australia, because we have to export our food, we export processed foods, and it's got to meet international standards. We can't just arbitrarily do that. We've got to get international agreements going, and then nothing happens. Yeah, I wouldn't quite completely buy that. So, for example, the Health Star rating is just, quote-unquote, an Australian-New Zealand thing, and that was able to be put on without too much discomfort from any party. The majority of our packaged food is specific to the Australia and also New Zealand markets. I don't see why we couldn't be doing um, mandatory or much stronger enforcement on that type of approach to reducing sodium in food. And what do you say to the people who say, well, this is just another example of the nanny state. Blakely wanted us all to wear masks during COVID, and now he wants to force us to eat food that's uh, low in sodium. Yeah, well, let's flip it. I don't think I'd be very happy with my nanny if she was putting more sodium in my food than I needed for taste and was actually increasing my blood pressure and therefore increasing my chance of heart attacks without me even knowing. So I'd actually quite appreciate the nanny state helping out a little bit there. So where to from here? We're not the first people to do this type of research. This research that we did this time, this modelling was funded by the Heart Foundation. We'll be trying to use that when the opportune moment arises. Policies are a lot, a lot about waiting for the right policy window. What our research does is it looks quite closely at the economics of it to show that no matter which way we look at it, health gain here is also associated with economic benefits and a little bit of easing on the health expenditure budget in the future. So that's a win, win, win when you also include the inequalities reduction. Tony Blakely, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you very much for your time. Professor Tony Blakely, who's at the University of Melbourne School of Population and Global Health. So when I'm hearing conversations like these, Norman, I'm always like torn between two things. One is the sort of like worried well Tegan Taylor who wants to reduce my own salt intake, which I have the power to do to a certain extent. And then the other is this sort of bigger picture of a big part of Australian society relies on ultra-processed foods because they are cheap and shelf-stable. And it's an equity thing that if we want to reduce salt across the population, it's not enough to just say, hey guys, like try to reduce it. It's good for you. So the analogy that I would, you're absolutely right. And the analogy I use or the similar situation in public health is fluoride in the water supply. So people who are against fluoride in the water supply saying, oh, it's impure and you're causing problems, which there's very little evidence about, by the way, if none, no evidence, is that the modelling that's been done by public health dentists is that if you actually remove fluoride, because what they say is, well, you know, if you just wash your teeth with fluoride, toothpaste, you have the same sort of effect. 
and just and spend the money that you've spent on fluoride on educating people about uh, about washing their teeth with fluoride fluoridated toothpaste. However, what the what the modelling's done there is that middle class people like ourselves, we hear that message. We've got time in our lives. We're able to sit down and be patient with our kids and teach them how to wash their teeth. And what happens when you do that and you remove the fluoride from the water supply and then rely on education is that the gap widens in in oral health between the haves and the have-nots. So you've actually got to do something passive where you don't have to make a decision so that we we all benefit. Because if it relies on agency and personal action, if you've got no money in your pocket and you're stressing about your job, your kids, and your housing is inadequate, you haven't got time to think about this. So you've got to do it passively. It's not the nanny state. It's actually redressing the inequalities that narrow the gap. Yeah, the path of least resistance becomes the healthiest path. Correct. You're with The Health Report. So, Norman, back in 2022, we were doing CoronaCast, uh, the show all about the coronavirus, and one of the things we talked about at the time was a rare but a really worrying trend of very young kids coming down with severe liver disease. It was a really similar syndrome happening in kids all over the world, and doctors didn't know what was causing it. Yeah, it caused a lot of fear. I think we were slightly less affected by it in Australia than other countries, but it did occur. And the um, and people were wondering what was what was causing it, um, and they thought that maybe it was an, an, a version of a virus, sorry, a family of viruses called adenoviruses. And uh, but these kids were really quite unwell, and some needed liver transplants. Yeah, and some even died. So a group of Australian researchers have just very recently pulled together all of the data that was from that time. 33 studies from all over the world to see if they could solve the mystery. And I've been speaking to one of the authors, Guy Eslick from Australian Paediatric Surveillance Unit. So it was pretty scary that all this sort of stuff was happening, and particularly because it only affected kids under the age of 10. Yeah, Um, and it was severe. It was severe. So at the end of the outbreak, you know, 6% of these kids needed liver transplants and uh, 2% of them died. And in total, there and to put I that mean, into we, numbers, we're talking 214 kids who had liver transplants and 66 who died. That's pretty awful. That's right. And, you know, this sort of happens really quickly. So, you know, if you have acute liver failure, you go from being a very well child to, you know, developing diarrhea and vomiting. You quickly develop jaundice. You become very, very ill. And you could have a liver transplant within a week after developing those symptoms if you're lucky. You can see how quickly these things sort of happen. And I suppose particularly after COVID, we know what a pandemic is. And this was quickly spreading around the world. And we thought by doing the meta-analysis and systematic review that we would um, sort of bring everything together and would hopefully give us a better picture of what was happening. And um, in some ways it did, and other ways it, it didn't. So it's not that uncommon that kids get hepatitis, but this was out of the ordinary. It was a really specific type of hepatitis. It was happening in clusters and it was happening in the same kind of way in different places all over the world. We looked at all the countries that were involved and we plotted their lockdowns. And then we plotted when the cases started. And if you look at it, the cases started to appear basically six to eight months after lockdown ceased in all of these countries. And, you know, these kids are young. The average age of these kids was three and a half. Mm. So they've been in lockdown for more than 
maybe 12 months in some cases. And some of them may have actually even been born in lockdown. So they've never been exposed to other pathogens in society. And so the hypothesis was, you know, basically, well, we came out of lockdown, these kids were let back into the real world, and then they got affected by viruses that then affected their liver because their immune system couldn't cope with it. And that's what induced their severe acute hepatitis. And so that's one of the hypotheses that's going around about this potential outbreak. One of the specific kind of types of virus that you identified as being a common denominator was adenovirus or adeno-associated virus 2, forms of what we used to just call a common cold. We're sort of narrowing down on them a bit. Is that sort of the leading theory now that that might have been the trigger? Look, there's still a lot of work going on around this. I mean, certainly what we identified was that up to 83% of the children who were affected with the severe acute hepatitis had the adeno-associated virus 2 in their bloodstream. The perplexing part was that in the children that had had transplants or had died, they could not identify any viruses within their livers. Now, that's not what you'd normally expect. If you get an adenovirus that affects your liver and causes hepatitis, when you look at that liver tissue and you look at it on the microscope, you're going to see adenoviruses. Or you could even try and identify them using other molecular methods. That was not the case here. They didn't see anything. So that is also a bit of a mystery because while the children had the virus within their blood, they didn't have it within their liver tissues. So in some ways, despite this really careful combing through all the available data, it's still really a mystery, which is pretty unsettling when we're talking about such a severe disease in such young kids. And it's something that Guy Eslick says really speaks to the importance of gathering as much data as possible in any kind of outbreak. The unfortunate component of this is that as scientists and researchers, ideally what would have happened would have been that tissue samples and blood samples from all of these kids would have been kept that could be used further down the track to work out are there other causes, what's happened. That hasn't always been the case. And um, that sort of is also an issue because when you've got kids coming in with acute liver failure and you're doing transplants and children are dying and you've got a large number of other sick kids in a unit, you're focused on, you know, obviously helping and fixing the kids, you're not really thinking, oh, there's a major outbreak of something here. I should be making sure that we keep liver tissue and blood samples and stuff like that. And um, the problem is that once those tissues and blood samples have been disposed of, you may never solve the mystery. And this may happen again. It's a bit like COVID in a way. If you don't identify the source, you'll never be able to say it can't happen again. It's always a bit uneasy when you don't have a nice, tidy answer, and I really hoped that you'd be able to give me one. I I do feel that. I mean, you know, to be honest, when my student came to me and said, oh, look, this is what we've got, I'm like, well, that's not really what I want. But (laughs) it's not about what you want. It's about what you get and then making the best out of that. I'm currently being asked to review a lot of papers from other researchers that are doing work overseas. So, you know, there's still people looking into this and trying to do stuff. And I think that's important because what I hope doesn't happen is that these kids just get forgotten and it's like, oh, well, that happened. You know, do you, oh, do you remember? We'll be mm-hmm. talking about it a bit like COVID. Oh, do you remember that that outbreak that occurred years ago? I don't want that. Like, mm-hmm. you don't want this to happen again. The aim should always be to identify a cause and work out how to stop this from happening. So, look, I hope that there's a lot more research going on in the background that I'm not aware of 
that comes out into the community. And, you know, I hope someone does say, look, we've identified a potential cause, but it is so difficult to do sometimes. Associate Professor Guy Eslick from the Australian Paediatric Surveillance Unit based at the University of Sydney. And Norman, not the sort of satisfying neat bow that I was hoping for there. No, but um, good that he's reviewed the evidence and um, it may eliminate some other problems in the future in terms of immune responses and so on. So think about the things that make you feel good, really in charge of your health. For me, at least, they're healthy, quote-unquote healthy behaviours, working up a sweat, putting together a really gorgeous, colourful, veggie, rich meal, and, of course, that boost you get from spending time with the people you really like. It's a real privilege to have these things because, of course, not everyone does. We've reported quite a bit over the years on the idea of social prescribing, where we know things that help us connect with other humans is good for our health. So why couldn't a doctor prescribe that instead of or in adjunct to a script that you fill at a pharmacy. I've been talking to Ilya. She's an artist based on the Gold Coast. And a few years ago, she was diagnosed with fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome. Coupled with the fact that she's also autistic, she found it increasingly hard to connect with her old social groups. But she found a lifeline in the form of social prescribing, which she actually initially heard about through an ABC podcast. Look, I originally heard about it on All in the Mind and they were talking about how successful it was in the UK. All the time I hear about the value of social engagement and social interaction and during my illness I kind of withdrew from the people I knew and I realised at one point my social life basically involved just the medical professionals I saw. I didn't actually see anyone socially and I didn't want to. I I just withdrew and I realised that's something that I just wasn't able to address. I personally got involved in a gardening group. I've got chronic fatigue, so I would need to rest a lot and sit in the shade and that was okay because I could paint pebbles. So you weren't obliged to talk to anyone, but you were in the company of others that were similar. So it was a very safe kind of space. Some of the other activities I got involved in, there was one called forest bathing, where we would go out and explore the forest. We also did a barista course. There was an art course. How is the social prescribing side of things different to you than just deciding to enrol in a forest bathing session or take an art class off your own bat? Well, it's interesting you say that because I used to be involved in life drawing at a community group and I still haven't returned to that group. And it's not because of them or anything to do with that group. I, I love life drawing. However, when you're feeling this kind of ugh and withdrawn from people, you get really... You isolate yourself and you tend not to want to go out. And the social prescribing kind of formalised it. And it's kind of like going back to school where someone says to you, right, you've made this commitment. You need to turn up at this time. Here's the form. Sign yourself in. Sign yourself out. It's rebuilt my confidence in people. I just got my confidence in creating that. So I got my art mojo back. I am really hesitant about spooking the value of doing social prescribing simply because 
I know it's not available everywhere. You know, if you get interested in doing something like this and it's not available, it's really crushing. And I really, really want it to be available to others. I feel so fortunate to have been able to do it. I had that benefit and I wish others could, but I don't want to put people's hopes up when I know it's not easily accessed. So Ilya is lucky enough to live in a part of Australia with a social prescribing provider, but as she says, it's not available everywhere. There are lots of small programs around the country, but we don't have consistent coverage. But there is a push to change that with a roundtable in Canberra coming up at the end of the month. Leading the charge is social prescribing researcher J.R. Baker. There's lots of good benefits at the health system level, interestingly, uh, which is a bit of a surprise. So once people are doing stuff that's interesting or matters to them, they're less likely to do extra visits to the GP. And usually you see a reduction in sometimes medication usage or um, attendances at emergency departments. So one thing that's interesting is it takes a bit of pressure off of the health system. But at the personal level, you see in general improvements in quality of life and measures of psychosocial well-being, so improvements in mood, connection with others. And then even in the case of people who've had injuries at work, more confidence to return to work and greater ability to return to work and improvements in return to work outcomes. So it's quite broad, but at the personal and the system level, generally it means uh, reasonable improvements for everybody. Who pays for these programs? So some of the stuff is free and just exists. So social prescribing on the plus side can leverage free or low-cost services sitting in communities that are there already that people might not know about. So part of it's uh, creating access to those sorts of things. Your local council might have lots of stuff available that you don't know about. The actual act of connecting itself tends to be paid for at the minute by um, Commonwealth government-funded initiatives, uh, usually through PHNs or primary health networks. So across the country, PHNs are trialling different ways of rolling out social prescribing initiatives for different communities and different sort of groups of people within the communities. So that's pretty exciting. And then, of course, some people are doing it themselves. So some GPs or primary care nurses or social workers, they've just jumped right into it. And they've embraced that idea of asking, what matters to you and how can we make your life more wonderful? So what you're kind of running up to at the moment is a big roundtable conversation in Canberra talking about how to make this more consistent across Australia. What are you asking for if it can be done at a real grassroots level like it is? It can be done, but the thing that, that the opportunities exist with are scaling things up so that it's accessible to everybody. So right now, most of healthcare is delivered still in that biomedical model where you focus on blood results and, and weight and you know disease and genetics and all those sorts of factors. But GPs and, and primary care providers, they do want to actually address the broader sort of determinants of health and well-being. And so it takes resources to actually do that. So one option is to make Medicare work a bit better for that. So things like creating social well-being plans in addition to chronic disease management plans and mental health treatment plans might be an option. Supporting PHNs to actually fund more link workers, uh, people who actually connect people to the available services, is another option. And of course, putting a robust framework to do research evaluation and to scale things up is another great opportunity. So all those things actually improve the system, the framework it's based on, and the actual capacity and capability of people to leverage it. So one country that's a couple of years ahead of us in this space is the UK. They've sort of had a a national scale version of this for the last few years. What are they seeing there that you hope we could replicate in Australia? 
Yeah, the UK has done all sorts of very cool things. So they are seeing those things we talked about earlier, reductions in healthcare utilization and improvements in social connection well-being. There's lots of uh, really interesting programs. So they have um, heritage connectors to actually tap you back into history. And they have um, nature connectors to actually get you out and about in the environment. And that can lead to other activities like Fishing is quite nice and nature-based. So there's, I suppose, what you have in the UK, because they have a bit of a head start, is a broad range of activities that you can be referred into and a much broader range of referrers. GP practices can get link workers put right into the practice to help people access all those sort of rich opportunities. That's fantastic that that funding is at both the medical primary care sort of level and also at the community level to help people access more opportunities. Why is now the time for this? There's a lot of reasons social prescribing is really timely at the minute. I suppose the first is post the sort of COVID pandemic, uh, not that it's ended. We've been talking a lot about the loneliness epidemic, and there's been a ton of media about it. The World Health Organization's onto it. The U.S. Surgeon General's onto it. We've all noticed that people are feeling a lot more lonely and socially isolated. So social prescribing is one opportunity at connecting people back into communities Then we have the risk of chronic disease in in larger aging populations, increases in mental health issues, and increase in psychosocial injuries in the workplace even. So there has to be another solution to actually supplement what we have in place and to look at all those other factors that address some of the aspects of health and well-being, including social and economic factors, health behaviors, environmental factors. Then there's the workforce. We keep seeing news articles and hearing about how the workforce isn't going to be sustainable over time, especially in light of the sort of other things I just mentioned. So it's quite important to give additional tools to the primary care workforce at the minute. And I guess the most important factor is everyone deserves a good quality of life. I know the Commonwealth Treasury is looking at measuring what matters in a well-being framework. And the question is, why not now? Why not now invest in healthy, connected communities with high quality of life? J.R. Baker is Chair of Australian Social Prescribing Institute of Research and Education, or ASPIRE, and CEO of Primary and Community Care Services. And so, yes, it is something we've covered over the years. So if you want more on social prescribing, you can listen to an interview that I did with the Director of Canada's first large-scale social prescribing project a couple of years ago. We'll put the link to that on our website. And, of course, as Ilya said... Our sister podcast, All in the Mind, has also talked about social prescribing a couple of times, art workshops and also nature prescriptions. Links to those episodes will also be on our website as well for your deep dive listening pleasure. And this has been The Health Report. And if you've not subscribed to this podcast, which is just truly one of those wonderful podcasts you could ever get, do so wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget our sister podcast, not just All in the Mind, subscribe to them. And watch that rash where we answer your health questions each week. We want your entire pod feed to just be chock-a-block full of our favourite podcasts. Yeah, who cares about true crime? Get on with health. (laughs) See you next time. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.